Blog Talk Radio. Faithful pastors are not undisciplined people who show up on Sunday. Faithful pastors are highly disciplined people whose lives are brought into line so that they can pour their whole life into the, into the flock God has given them. The only way you can work hard and be productive is to be disciplined. To be disciplined. This calls for a disciplined life, strictly ordered, under control. Welcome to Grace to You Weekend with John MacArthur. I'm your host, Phil Johnson. You probably know churches that have made changes to their preaching, their music, and even the decor of their building designed to attract today's churchgoer. And the changes seem to work. People are attending those churches. 
But when you're talking about drawing people to church, before you strategize how to get them through the door, you need to ask this question. What does Scripture say about the purpose of the local church? What are the biblical essentials churches must practice, no matter the demands of the culture? John's going to help you answer those questions today in his study called The Bible-Driven Church. Now, before we begin the lesson, John, I want to pause and recognize the people who support this ministry, many of them listening right now. And I want to say personally to them, thank you. And I know you do, too. It's pretty hard to overstate how grateful we are for these people and their contributions, even just over the past few weeks. Yeah, and it's always dramatic because we're gone the last part of the year from the office, and then we come back, uh, as we have just recently, and there's this mass of mail, a flood of mail that has stacked up, and we start plowing through this. And I think it's the highlight time of the year Hmm. for our staff and all of us. The generosity has been, frankly, staggering, an amazing outpouring of love and trust from you and um, others of God's people around the country and around the world. And and in light of today's difficulties and the economy is not very secure, and, you know, when you make sacrificial gifts to this ministry, it says an awful lot about your priorities and about your love for the Lord. So I, I trust that it also says something about what we're doing, something about the fact that we're providing what your heart craves and desires, and that's why you're supporting us. So your support is both an answer to prayer and a mandate, really, for us to keep doing what we've been doing that has caused you to want to support us, and we we certainly commit to doing that. I'm very excited about the year 2021. We're going to reach into new areas. We're going to continue the work of translation, particularly into Russian and uh, Farsi and some other languages. Uh, We're we're going to be reaching places we've never reached before. Great things are ahead. The Word of God is unchanging, and our commitment to teach it is unchanging as well. So thank you for standing with us and uh, providing resources by which we can do what we do to the glory of our Lord. Thank you for your partnership What a great year lies ahead of us. Yes, thank you, friends. Your generosity, your partnership, is going to help us take biblical truth to unbelievers, encourage pastors and laymen, and strengthen churches throughout 2021. We are grateful for you. Again, thank you so much for what you do. Now, to today's lesson, here's John to begin his look at the Bible-driven church. It's our joy now to study together the Word of God. Open your Bible, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. What is the shepherd's responsibility to the sheep? Or what are the shepherd's responsibilities to the sheep, plural? Number one, we have the responsibility to labor among the sheep. You'll look down in verse 12 and you'll notice this phrase, those who labor among you. There is the first identifying mark of their pastors, their elders, their leaders, their would-be in-process overseers. They diligently labor among you. The phrase is self-evident. You don't need much of an explanation. Just a few technical details. There's that word kapiao again that Paul loves to use. It means to work to the point of sweat and exhaustion, to exhibit great exertion and great effort, to work until you're weary. 
And he characterizes the pastor as one who works diligently, who labors to the point of sweat and exhaustion among his people. That is the sphere of his ministry. His responsibility is not outside the church. It's not long distance. It's intimately involved with the church like a shepherd would be intimately involved with the sheep, like a father would be intimately involved with a family. He is to be involved with his people, among the people, in the midst of the people, alongside of them, in spiritual labor. What's he doing? Explaining the gospel, explaining the truth, applying the truth, warning them, admonishing them, counseling them, helping them. Paul, you remember in Acts 20, went house to house, house to house, teaching the things of God with great dedication and great effort, touching the personal lives of people, pouring his life into the flock that God had given him, even as any faithful shepherd would do. Go back to chapter 2 for a moment, verse 9, and see a little more deeply into the pattern of Paul. For he did not say what he would not do. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now, when he came there, there was no church to support him. There was no place to take an offering to sustain him. He had to work with his own hands, earn his own living, work night and day on, on just taking care of himself and everybody traveling with him, and then had to pour himself totally into the founding of a church. He knew what it was to work hard. He knew what it was to work sacrificially. He knew what it was to give himself, literally to spend himself in reaching those people. And then in verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians 2, he likens himself to a nursing mother who tenderly cares for her own children. And that, dear friends, as you well know, is a nonstop 24-hour-a-day job nursing a baby. And Paul treated his congregation with the intimacy of a nursing mother. Later on, he talks about the, the particular relationship of the father that he had to them, where he took the Word of God right down to their living level and applied it in their individual lives in that same second chapter. Over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says that he commands uh, them in his second letter to them, to stay aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we didn't act in an undisciplined manner among you. We didn't eat anybody's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we don't have a right to be supported, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. He knew that if he was going to, to be a faithful leader, he would have to demonstrate the, the level of, of effort and exertion and work and labor that was necessary. And so he says, you'll note there again that marvelous statement in verse 7, we didn't act in an undisciplined manner. The only way you can work hard and be productive is to be disciplined. This calls for a disciplined life, strictly ordered, under control. And then down in verse 13 of 2 Thessalonians 3, he gives a good hint and says, don't get weary in doing well. Keep your energy. Work hard to the point of sweat and exhaustion. In order to do that and do it right, you have to be very, very disciplined. Faithful pastors are not undisciplined people who show up on Sunday. Faithful pastors are highly disciplined people whose lives are brought into line so that they can pour their whole life into the, into the flock God has given them. This kind of principle is repeated Many, many places, but no better is it stated than in Colossians 1.28, 
where Paul says, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. It's an absolutely astounding goal. Paul, Paul didn't say, I'm just trying to get people saved by the chin of their, or the skin of their chinny chin chin. I'm not, I'm not just trying to get them in the door. I am going to admonish every man and teach every man with all wisdom to present every man complete in Christ. I am not content with their salvation. I'm not content with marginal spirituality. I want them complete in Christ. And for this purpose, I copy I labor to the point of sweat and exhaustion, agonizing. It's a consuming thing. The faithful shepherd knows his sheep and touches their lives and pours his whole life into them. That's his calling. That's his duty. That's his responsibility. And yet there are so many in the ministry who give so little to the church they're in. They take a lot, spend their time in other places and other enterprises. First Timothy 4.10, he says, It is this for which we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men. And again, he uses that word kapiao and agonizomai. We work to the point of sweat and exhaustion, and we agonize because we are dealing with eternal matters. This is a major effort. Paul chronicles the pain of his own effort over and over again. He talks about all of the difficulties that he had. He doesn't decry the responsibility. He's just honest about the difficulty. But in one very interesting text in 1 Corinthians 15.10, looking at all the others who have preached and all the others who have worked, he says, I labored even more than all of them. And then he gives all the credit to the grace of God working in him. It's a... Sometimes hard to get it across to young men who are going to be shepherds that the difference between great effectiveness in the ministry and mediocrity is effort. There's no secrets. There's no magic. It's work. It's effort. I'm reminded of the words of Amy Carmichael. She wrote, God hardened me against myself, the coward with pathetic voice who craves for ease and rest and joy, myself, arch traitor to myself. My hollowest friend, my deadliest foe, my clog, whatever road I go. End quote. Unless you can overcome yourself, competing against your own tendency to be lazy and different, to be at ease, you cannot have the disciplined life that results in the exertion and the effort that leads to the effectiveness. Now, this sets the example as well as being the pattern for the servant duty that is characteristic of every shepherd. Leadership success comes to those who are willing to work to exhaustion, listen to this, for the sake of objectives great enough to demand total sacrifice. If the objectives are great enough, how can you give less? Now, there's a balance there. I remember when Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish minister, died, lay dying at the age of 29. He turned to a friend who was sitting with him by his bed, and he said, I have killed the horse, and now I can't deliver the message. There's a point at which you maybe go a little too far, but the shepherd's tour of duty in the church calls for exhausting labor among the sheep. It's his responsibility to give himself as a servant to the sheep to meet their needs in every area that he can. And some of that involves delegating and sharing the load. But it's the work that has to be done. Secondly, he not only has responsibility to labor among the sheep, but secondly, authority over the sheep. And that is very clearly indicated. Look at that verse 12 again. And have charge over you in the Lord and have charge over you in the Lord. Charge over you, proistemi, means to stand before someone or to preside or to lead or to direct. 
It's used in 1 Timothy chapter 3, three times, verse 4, 5, and 12, and 1 Timothy 5, 17, in reference to elders and pastors and leaders in the church. And it means to be in charge, to have authority. It is a delegated authority, admittedly, delegated by Christ. But we stand in the place of Christ. We are under shepherds, under the great shepherd, as Peter calls him. Notice it says we have charge over you. We preside over you. We lead you. We direct you. We have the responsibility to give you spiritual wisdom, spiritual protection, spiritual direction, spiritual guidance. It's our responsibility to cover all of those kinds of things, to take care of the general health of the church, to set the group spirit, the group morale, the spiritual tone, to bring about a functioning unity, to handle people and personal relationships and all their difficulties in life, to solve problems by discovering problems, evaluating options, finding solutions, working for change. It's our responsibility to do creative planning, strategy, assessment, analysis, criticism, find methods to reach spiritual objectives. It's our responsibility to provide that leadership for you. We have charge over you. Please notice the little phrase, in the Lord. We're not self-appointed. It's not man-made. You didn't give us that authority. We didn't take it on our own. It's not from men. We are called, equipped, appointed by God. It is our duty to rule for His sake, not for personal power, personal prestige, personal gain, personal career advancement, but for the Lord. That little phrase, in the Lord, is the sphere in which our authority rests. Our authority is in Him. He delegated it to us. We only have it as we're obedient to His Word and His will. We have a delegated authority. It is not our own. And it does not go beyond the expression of His will in His Word and through His Spirit. And so we are given authority, but only in the Lord, not beyond that. My authority only is only in the Lord, delegated to me to operate through the Word and by the direction of the Spirit of God through the application of that Word. And so we have an oversight of great responsibility. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, we're not to lord it over the flock. We're not to dominate you like it says back in Luke's gospel, the Gentiles do, they dominate. Not that kind. It is a loving, gentle, delegated authority that does not serve us, but serves you. So the responsibility on the side of the shepherds then is to work hard among the sheep, serving all of their needs, and then to exercise authority over them, that is to lead them in the right direction, to correct them, to solve their problems, to bring unity and harmony, to build back relationships, to give direction, to set the spiritual tone, all of that. And then thirdly and finally, the end of verse 12 says, and give you instruction. Labor among the sheep, authority over the sheep, instruction for the sheep, and give you instruction. That's from the verb nutheteo, which is often translated in the New Testament, admonish. You've seen it many times, the word admonish in your Bible. And basically, it is instruction, but instruction with a view toward correction. It carries the idea of, if you keep going this way, you're going to have problems. You've got to turn and go this way. It is not pedantic. It is not academic. It is not just data. It is not just information. It is instruction with a view toward changing people, toward correcting them. And I tell young men and teaching them to preach, you always preach for change. You always preach for verdict, for someone to say, I'm here, I ought to be there, this is what I need to do. Always. Every sermon in 
principle is to take people to, to the point where they see what they ought to be, where they see what they are not, and move them toward what they ought to be. So it's teaching with an element of warning, an element of correction, an element of channeling them toward holy living. We could say it's tender instruction toward holy living. It's used in 1 Corinthians 4.14 of how a father instructs his beloved children. Paul telling the Corinthians that I, I taught you like a father teaching beloved children. I admonished you. You gently, tenderly instruct them away from those things that hurt them toward those things that bless them. And of course, the source of that is the Word of God, isn't it? And shepherds then are to be skilled instructors, skilled instructors. And by the way, that's the only specific skill that they are said to have to to have in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. The only skill, out of all the character qualities, the only skill is they are to be apt to teach. 1 Timothy 3, 2, skilled teachers. 1 Timothy 4, 6 and 1 Timothy 4, 16 reiterate the importance of their teaching responsibility. These leaders of the church, these shepherds, are to be skilled teachers. Why? Well, you'll look at Titus 1 for a moment, verse 9 so that they can hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the doctrine. In other words, for the positive effort of holding fast the faithful word according to sound doctrine, in other words, so they can teach the truth, then in order that they may be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, positive and negative. You want to exhort those who believe the truth to do the truth, you want to exhort those who deny the truth to give up their error and accept the truth. So it's a positive and a negative. You have to build your, your, your instruction then around the knowledge of the truth and skill in applying it. He says there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers. They have to be silenced. Who's going to silence them? You are by the strength and power of your ability to refute their error with the Word, and you're going to build the church by the strength and power of your ability to articulate the truth. We are given, says Ephesians 4, to the church for the edification of the saints. How do you get edified? Through the Word of God, which is able to build you up or edify you, Acts 20.32 says. So if the Word of God builds you up, and my job is to build you up, then I've got to give you the Word of God which builds you up. I have to be skilled at that, that I might do it in such a way that it impacts powerfully your life, that it impacts those who deny the truth by giving them irrefutable arguments. And if there is anything, and this is a personal word, if there's anything in my life that drives me, that really compels me in the ministry above all other things, it is my view of Scripture. Because I believe the Scripture is the holy, inerrant, inspired Word of God, it is so sacred to me that I have hanging over my head this tremendous fear of ever misrepresenting it or of ever ignoring any of its truths. Realizing every word is pure and every word out of the mind of God given to us on these pages was for our edification in one way or another, I must be committed to teaching it all. People say, why do you go over every verse, every phrase, every word, because everyone came from God? Who am I to edit God? I'm not God's editor, and I'm not even God's interpreter. I have to allow the Scripture by God to interpret the Scripture. Let God interpret His own Word. 
And so the thing that drives me and compels me is the view of Scripture that I have. And, of course, behind it, the view of God is a holy God who spoke His Word that it might be spoken to men. And so not only are we to labor among you and take authority over you, but we are to instruct you, and that with great skill. And what then is the shepherd's responsibility to the sheep? Very simple. To work among you, to have authority over you, to lead you in the path that God has designed, and to feed you consistently the truth that will instruct you away from the path of sin into holy living. Faithful shepherds are to discharge that responsibility. That's John MacArthur showing you the characteristics you should look for in the men who lead your church, the Bible-driven church. That's John's study here on Grace to You Weekend. Now, as a compliment to this study, let me recommend John's book titled Christ's Call to Reform the Church. It examines the Lord's memorable and hard-hitting words to seven churches, which we read about in the early part of the book of Revelation. From Jesus' encouragement and his warnings to those churches, you will find practical strategies for putting off worldliness and for keeping your love for Christ from growing cold. To order Christ's Call to Reform the Church, contact us today. Call 800-55-GRACE or go to our website, gty.org. The title again of this book, Christ's Call to Reform the Church. You might want to pick up a few copies to go through with your Bible study group. Remember, shipping is free. To order Christ's Call to Reform the Church, call 800-55-GRACE or go to gty.org. And when you get in touch, let us know how John's teaching is strengthening you spiritually. Perhaps your family has been encouraged by the daily devotionals on gty.org, or someone you know has come to faith in Christ after hearing one of these broadcasts. We love to hear those stories. Email us at letters at gty.org. Again, that's letters at gty.org. Or drop a note in the mail addressed to Grace to You Weekend, Post Office Box 4000, Panorama City, California, 91412. And now on behalf of John MacArthur and the entire Grace to You staff, I'm Phil Johnson saying thanks for tuning in today and make sure you're here again next week when John continues his study called The Bible-Driven Church. Don't miss the next half hour of Unleashing God's Truth one verse at a time on Grace to You Weekend. Yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the son of man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the son of man? Trust. Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing. And forever say worthy is the land. What's up? Surprise, I'm back in your section With Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection More power than gravity His knowledge and strategies confound the academy Bow to his majesty He paid sin's salary Took up blame on Calvary Those who love his name spread his fame as the power
policy. All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice. That's prize I'm asked to Christ and rise in the afterlife. What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes who hate truth. The gospel is not fake news. I gotta send the gospel sweeter than it's ever been. Ain't nothing changed, let us in. We got the medicine. It's still human emergency, the serpent attack. You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is gonna spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? Stop and listen to my composition. Lots of rhythm, but not traditional, kind of different. But God's consistent, no contradiction, my proposition. Through crucifixion, he mocked and crippled his opposition. It's not some fiction, I'm spitting, the Son of God is risen. And my incentive for godly living is I'm forgiven. Jesus came to unlock the prison. And through the Spirit, he brings a new birth like an obstetrician. At times I listen, a lot of Christian hip-hop is missing. The proposition, it's my suspicion, we drop the mission. Not to this, but the Word of God, is it not sufficient? The doctrine is that the gospel fixes. Is our shock condition. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness that God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is gonna spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music, but we gon' celebrate him, relegate him, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself. They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the Father wasn't gracious, no synonym. Again, he came straight blameless, no synonym. Again, nothing's been the same since, no synonym. Again, fakers lack his fragrance, no synonym. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how are we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus? When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Then, up, hands up, if you truly love the Son of Man, trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is gonna spread across the land, what's up, stand up, hands up, does anybody love the Son of Man, trust, Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land, what's up, long ago was creation? This is Ken Ham, a publisher of the award-winning magazine for the whole family, Answers. Some Christians argue we can't know how long ago creation was. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a specific age for the universe, and that's a good thing. It will be out of date within a year. Instead, the Bible gives us exactly what we need, the true history of the universe. The Bible tells us God created everything in six days. Now, these were literal 24-hour days, as we'll see tomorrow. 
Then it gives us detailed chronologies from Adam to Abraham. So when you do the math, the length is about 2,000 years. Then there was 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ and 2,000 years from then until now. That means creation was only about 6,000 years ago. Discover more about science and the Bible at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com.
six days or six long ages. This is Ken Ham, heading up the apologetics ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark. Genesis 1 describes God creating everything in six days. But were these regular 24-hour days? Well, absolutely. You know, while the word day in the Bible can have many different meanings, we know what it means because of the context. And the context of Genesis 1 is clear. These were ordinary days. Words there like evening and morning make this obvious. And Exodus 20 verse 11 says God created in six days and rested one day. That's why we have a seven-day week. If these days were long ages, then our week makes no sense. Jesus said he created male and female at the beginning of creation, not millions of years after. Get more answers when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. Find free articles, videos, books, and other faith-affirming resources that point to Christ at AnswersRadio.com. Around the time Jackie asked me about Calvinism, Christianity. 
watching hip hop found a different algorithm and crossed over without taking the crossover made us all sober years later is it all over trip asked me if i was still motivated i was quiet but i wanted to say no i hate it Cause brothers in your camp causing lots of confusion i love them as brothers in christ but not their conclusions they want to reach the world by all means keep pursuing it but tell me why they gotta diss the church while they doing it that's what i wanted to say but i ain't say it though but no more laying low i want them to play it slow and i ain't dissing them my prayers are the proof like boaz without ruth is unity without truth CHH is like gorillas in the mist With no brotherly love It's like Philly don't exist What's happening here? It's a different atmosphere Cats appear most concerned about a rap career Brothers overseas being slain in the sand While we're vain in our plan Taking fame and some fans And I ain't got time to philosophize Satan got a plot device I'm seeing lots of guys apostatize On top of all that Donald Trump's the president It's all good though Cause Jesus Trump's the president So more than ever I'm trying to rep the Lord who bled And we ain't never gonna stop Word to Corey Red. I'm just trying to give a healthy demonstration of theocentric music for the selfie generation. See, the problem is sin, no riddle in it. Cause all sin got I in the middle of it. We're mad to brave and truly evil. We need to be born again without a Matt Damon movie sequel. In the gospel, God addresses our depravity. The lamb slain at Calvary, the depths of his agony. He rose from the grave with the funding grace. And so when we come in faith, he'll bring us up from the sunken place. Our sins, decrepit depths, left the mess. No rest was left till Jesus put death to death. The beauty of the victory truly is a mystery. The cross of Jesus Christ is at the nucleus of history. Before the cross, they were saved on credit. After the cross, we've been saved on debit. Since our champion in the great war suffered, we gonna proclaim his death like the Lord suffer, so welcome to the Still Jesus Project, yo, we just getting started and we got a lot left. The punishment before the crime? This is Ken Ham, author of the new book on the family called Will They Stand? Yesterday we learned that it's clear from Genesis 1 and other places in scripture that God created in six days. But many Christians will take ideas from outside the Bible, such as millions of years, and try to add them to the Bible. They'll say God created over long periods of time. But this idea has a lot of problems. And here's the biggest one. The supposed millions of years come from the rock layers. Well, these are filled with fossils. So if they're millions of years old, that means death and disease existed for millions of years before sin. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Death wasn't part of creation until Adam sinned. Before that, it was very good. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham on the latest in science, culture, and ministry news when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com. All right, here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now, when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus.
we begin When God made the whole wide world just by speaking By his great might he said let there be light The light he called day and the dark he called night He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds The herds and the trees, the birds and the bees But the big surprise God had up the sleeve On day number six created Adam and Eve Made in the image of the beautiful most high God told them be fruitful and multiply Everything's yours but that tree do not try Cause in the day you eat it you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used craft to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero when his name is Jesus. Why is our world such a mess? This is Kent Ham, encouraging you to try a free trial of our streaming platform, Answers.tv. Our world is filled with sickness, pain, brokenness and death. But why? Why is the world like this? Well, it wasn't originally. You see, God's original creation was very good. There was no death, suffering or pain in it. But when Adam sinned, everything changed. Creation was cursed and death became a reality. Romans chapter 8 says all of creation groans because of sin and we live in a world that's groaning from the weight of sin and the brokenness of creation. But you know there's hope. Jesus came and died in our place and rose again. Everyone who puts their faith and trust in him will have eternal life in heaven. Get answers to questions about science and the Bible. Find creationist nature programs, hands-on science programs, and so much more at answers.tv. That's answers.tv.
Adam and Eve, were they real people? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. Many Christians are now claiming that Adam and Eve, well, weren't real people. Instead, they'll argue we evolved from an ape-like ancestor and that Adam and Eve were just representative types. But that's not how the Bible treats them. The book of Romans says it's because of one man's sin that we all die. If Adam wasn't the first man, why did others in his population die when they didn't sin in Adam? 1 Corinthians says it's because the first Adam brought death that we need the last Adam, Jesus. Now think about it. If Adam didn't really bring death into creation, why did Jesus even need to come and die a physical death on the cross? Discover Grace Relations on Answers.tv, our new video streaming platform. Enjoy hundreds of videos, science and nature programs, conferences and more at Answers.tv. This is a wretched radio. Hey, what's that sound effect? <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's dead. We're going to beat this horse because let's be honest, this conversation is not dead. It's a big one. It's relatively new for Christians in America, and it is what you are talking about. It is what you are thinking about, and it is imperative that you and I work through it together. These issues are so phenomenally complex. It is, it is like an emotional tapestry all woven together. You pull this thread, that one comes out with it. It is difficult to figure out how we are supposed to feel and behave when everything appears to be changing. This is a big deal. And to minimize it and go, oh, come on, it's just an election. Just let's move on. Everybody's life is being challenged. Freedoms, liberties, it means the way that you wake up and go about your business during the day, it's not the same. And I fear too often we either spend way too much time navel-gazing or we spend no time. We just plod through, not recognizing the signs of the times. I wouldn't build a church on this particular verse, but Jesus, when he was admonishing the Pharisees, could be admonishing you and me when it comes to history and the present. He said, so let me get this straight. I'm paraphrasing. You can tell the weather by looking at the signs of the times. You can see the sun go down. It's that color, red. It's going to be a good day. You you see it come up red. You know that it's going to be a storm. You get that. But you can't read the signs that the Messiah is in your midst. What is the matter with you? Wow. In other words, why aren't you aware of what's going on? Why don't you get this? Don't you remember, you know, your Jewish history? Don't you remember Psalm 2? Don't you remember Isaiah 53? I'm here. You can't get it because you're not thinking and you are not aware of what was happening in the past to know what is going on in the present because God is orchestrating history. And so you and I should be, without becoming navel gazers, that's what Buddhists do, We're aware of what's going on. So what's happening out there? How are we living? Let's be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. And I think we need to do it together. Right now, even as I speak, out of the tens and tens of people listening to this program, I doubt any of us are on the exact same page. I doubt it. Now, that doesn't mean at some point we might not find increasing agreement. But right now, we're probably off on these things because this is new territory. We're having to deal with a country that is now against Christians, and it is. 
what am I feeling? What am I thinking? How am I living? How am I preparing? What am I doing? How do I respond? These are big questions for a brave new world, and I don't think that I can answer them by myself, for me, and certainly not for you. This is what the church does together. And so as we go about the business, even now, or any other time that we talk about this, or you talk about this, might I suggest we recognize we are at different shades, different levels of understanding the issues, contemplating the issues, experience with the issues, studying the issues. And I don't think any of us are going to be in lockstep at this moment. And the last thing that I think should happen is that we we divide over these things. There's a pretty good chance, if you're still listening, you're annoyed with me right now because it seems perhaps really clear to you, and I'm sure it does. And 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 I can I've got some pretty clear ideas. Now, have they been pressure tested? Not much. I, I probably sing with a chorus for the most part. But can I see you on Sunday morning? And can we talk about this issue and maybe discover? Oh boy, um, she isn't seeing this the way that I do. Uh, they've got a re- they're like a ten on this emotion. And I'm at about like a nothing. Can I go? I get it. I understand, brother, sister. I, I understand. Well, let's figure this out together. Can we do that? Can we get better together? That is absolutely what we're supposed to be doing. And we cannot let our current mindset of cable debates, social media discourse, Define how we talk about these things together. We have to find a better way to do it. I know how I feel about me and my opinion. I know it. I'm so right. I mean, wow, am I right. And now along you come and you go, you know, um, about your concern about capitalism and socialism, I think, you know, you're overheated on that deal. Well, I, I could quickly put you into the category of heretic. These, these, these issues are not orthodoxy issues. I would like you to imagine something for a moment. Maybe, maybe it is I. Maybe you have to think of somebody else. But right now, think of somebody who's kind of bugging you because you're not agreeing on this subject. Somebody who's a believer. Right? Oh, let's do this. Jimmy Jam. Yes, I always disagree with you. Let's go. <laughs> okay, perfect. Great test. <laughs> <laughs> you could have at least let me ask the question. Oh, man. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. All right. Have you disagreed with me on any of these things, even a shade? Today? No. Uh-uh. You haven't? I have not. No. Okay. All right. Well, that's actually that's, you're teaching me so. Okay. Well, that's pretty. That's pretty. That's pretty stunning. But let's just say that you and I have a different, and no doubt we would, because if we keep digging down, you'd probably go, eh, no, or I didn't arrive at the same conclusion the same way you did. But now let's imagine, let's just fast forward into the future without Michael J. Fox. We get arrested, and we get thrown in a Philippian prison like Paul did. And Jimmy, you and I are shackled together at the ankles. It's midnight. Do you think you and I could sing hymns together the way that Paul and I believe Barnabas did? Uh, no. No, I mean, I'm, honestly, I would want to answer yes. I would want to 
but I'm, I'm not talking about because we're in prison. I'm talking about because we can love one another, even though oh. we came into the jail cell disagreeing on the assault on capitalism or oh. the threat of socialism. I think those things are going to evaporate. Yeah, for sure. They, they look. This is this is the ditch danger. I can, I, I can, I can make the point. I think pretty persuasively that the current things of this world, they are a vapor. How can I make that point with authority? Because well, that's what the Bible says. These things are a vapor. They're kindling. They're, they're all going to get torched. None of this stuff. For eternity matters. It does not affect the kingdom of Jesus Christ at all. None. Zero. All of history, every event outside of the church, exists for the church. Jesus is building his church, so everything that he is orchestrating and ordaining, it is for church history, not world history. And these things, one day are not going to matter. And you can hear that and you can go, amen. Now I can go into a ditch. Therefore... I don't care about America. You Don't bother voting. It's just stupid anyway, and we shouldn't be involved. And I'm not going to try to help people, and I'm never going to sing the pledge of, say the Pledge of Allegiance. I'm done. Hold on. Wait a second. That's a ditch. And that, by the way, is the way we tend to communicate with one another a lot. Oh, you said this? Therefore, boom, I'm over there. There's more nuance to all of this stuff. And my singular point in putting us all into a Philippian jail is, will we, when we are locked up, when we are literally breaking bread because a crust of bread has been thrown in and we're dividing it and sharing it with one another, will we be able to sing together or will this have caused us to not fellowship? This stuff is going to be gone is my point. We're one in Christ We are slaves of the most benevolent master imaginable. And you and I, we are are brothers and we're brothers and sisters. This is is not like one of those dramas from the 80s where the brother goes here, the other brother goes there, and then they never talk. No, no, no. We we, 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 We don't get to divide. We don't get to do that. That's a sin. We don't get to. We're together. Someday, should we ever be dragged together (laughs) through a court and thrown into a jail, I'm quite certain that you and I are not going to sit there going, you know, hold on a second. Before we sing, I know that my Redeemer lives. i got to ask you, when Kamala Harris was talking about legalizing prostitution, on a scale of 1 to 10, how incensed were you? Uh, Yeah, it was about like a 7 or 8, I guess. No, you should have been a 10! Jailer! Guard! Get me away from this, brother. Perspective. Bible. Understanding emotions are tricky. These issues are tricky. Ditches are everywhere. We've got a new new chapter that we're opening up in America and for the church. And if we can't write this chapter together, improving together, that will have been, frankly, the biggest tragedy of all. Disagree with me, disagree with us, fine. But let's do it lovingly. Let's do it together, knowing that you can help me, I might be able to help you, 
and together we can become more like our master, Jesus Christ. Kind of cool, put it in that perspective, kind of exciting times ahead. Until tomorrow, go serve your king. That was uh, wretched. Wretched is uh, a mystery. Oh, it's a mystery. And uh, a radio show is a TV show. So check that out, wretched.org, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D.org. And also YouTube as wretched, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D, wretched. And the host there is Todd Frio. Uh, let's see. Now I'm going to play a song for you. Yeah. He made us all, yo. Yeah. God made us all, yo. God made me and you. Sing, children. No, we He did it to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees. From lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they're God, they are praising. Their differences cry out. God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sort. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as a gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. will be saved in the book of Revelation, chapter number seven. The church from all times is gathered in heaven. Each tribe and people, language and nation, all thanking God for the gift of salvation. Together, forever, with saints of all kinds, through each the glory of the Lord's going to shine. This is exactly what God has designed when God made me and you. Let's go. and different
Yeti and her friends with the via via. Right now. The beat. 